Did you hear
WZBC 90.3, Boston College. My name is Brian Carpenter, and tonight we're airing a special program on the incredible career of composer, bandleader, multi-instrumentalist Sam Rivers, called Rivers and Rhythms. Uh, he is a huge figure in 20th century music. What we just heard was the piece Neptune. That's from Sam and his long-running big band, the Rivby Orchestra. That's from their Grammy-nominated album, Culmination, 1999. Before that, a solo improvised piece called Visage from the album Portrait, an incredible live solo performance by Sam Rivers at the Academy of Arts in Berlin in 1995. Sam Rivers' work spanned over four decades, he passed away last December at the age of 88. He led one of the most remarkable careers in the history of jazz, playing with Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, B.B. King, uh, Billie Holiday, Jimi Hendrix, T-Bone Walker, uh, John Lee Hooker, Cecil Taylor, Dave Holland, many others. He was one of the leading improvisers on the tenor saxophone, but he was also a virtuoso pianist. Uh, soprano saxophonist and flautist. He wrote continuously, churning out hundreds of compositions, many of which we uh, we never heard, some of which we'll hear in this program. Uh, his last piece, according to his daughter Monique, was commissioned by Harvard here uh, in Boston, where he was writing uh, just before he passed. Uh, with me in the studio uh, is very special guest Alan Chase. He is a saxophonist, composer, educator, uh, he has appeared on dozens of recordings as a leader and sideman. He's taught jazz history and ear training at both New England Conservatory and Berkeley. Maybe you can start and tell us how you met Sam, uh, maybe some opening statements on what he's meant to you. Well, I started listening to him when I was in high school thanks to a friend who happened to get a job at Impulse Records in the A&R and uh, artist uh, relations part of the label and so I got to hear all those amazing records that he made in the 70s when I was pretty young and they really uh, affected me as a musician who was kind of interested in the avant-garde but also jazz traditions and I could kind of hear both things in his music. I didn't really, I, I met him in a funny brief way uh, which I'll talk about later just for five minutes in 1979 but I didn't really meet him and get to 
uh, be around him until uh, 1996. It was my first year at New England Conservatory as chair of the jazz department. And part of my job was I got to bring a guest artist for a week uh, every year to work with the big band. And I had heard him at the Knitting Factory with his trio, his later trio um, that was based in Florida. And um, I was amazed to hear just how fresh and exciting and how vibrant he still mm -hmm. was at that age. And I talked to him, and he said, "I'm right." I said, "You live in Florida. This is amazing." And <laughs> and he and he said, "Yeah." And and I said, uh, "You know, what are you doing?" He said, "I've written over a hundred big band pieces." And I said, "Okay, I need your phone number and your email address." And I I called him up, and I got to hire him. It was the first thing I did as chair of jazz studies at New England Great. Conservatory. He came Great. for a week. I got to spend a week with him. You know, oh. uh, rehearsing with the band, playing a trio concert with Cecil McBee and Bob Moses doing some saxophone pieces, things like that. Great. And how long, he was a week. And some of these, I mean, you, you mentioned that this piece, Neptune, you, you sort of recognize as one of the one of the pieces. I believe it might be one of the pieces we played, uh, you know, 15, 16 years ago. But yeah, I'm pretty sure. We and how did, the, how did the students fare on that? They they did a good job with it. Uh -huh. It was uh, it, it was an it's very challenging undertaking, yeah. cha challenging yeah. to rehearse. And then he, when he arrived, they got the feeling of it from just the way he ran the rehearsals. Oh sure, yeah, Which, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I I met Sam in 1995 in Florida, and 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 he and his wife B had moved to Orlando in '91. At that time, I was going to school in Gainesville, and I was getting a degree in engineering. And he was producing a and, and I was producing a music festival there called the the ja Gainesville Jazz Pop Festival. And one of the people in my band uh, played in Sam's orchestra and suggested I bring him to the festival, which I did. And of course, you know, one of these pieces was one of the first things I heard. And of course, have completely floored. You know, when you see that big band and that that kind of energy coming at you, uh, and and it really just changed my whole perspective on, on on music. And so from there, I got to know Sam and B. I helped them book shows for about five years until I moved here to um, in 2000. So he was a huge inspiration um, and mentor to me. Um, his sense of community, how prolific he was. Um, even how long his marriage lasted. He was married for over 50 years, and of course, she was a huge part of his life as well. Um, and I, I must have seen Sam on the order of 30, 40 times, and that was one of the great things about living in Florida, was he was there and he was performing very, very frequently. Yeah. And writing, you know, very, just like you said, he was he was uh, writing right up until the end. Um, so, you know, that, that sort of was a big part of my life, and, and, and that's part of one of the reasons I'm, I'm doing this show. His parents were were based in Chicago. They were church musicians, um, and they were touring in Oklahoma in 1923 when Sam was born. And from what I read, um, they were touring with the Silvertone Quartet and the Fisk Jubilee Singers. His mother played piano. His father sang. And I got a recording here from the Fisk Jubilee Singers to give you a little idea of um, some of the music that uh, um, Sam's parents were involved with. I got a cross, you got a cross, all the God's children got a cross. When I get to heaven, gonna lay down my cross, gonna shout all over God's heaven. Heaven, heaven, everybody talking about heaven, ain't going to heaven. Heaven, gonna shout all over God's heaven. I got a crown, you got a crown, all the God children got a crown. When I get to heaven, gonna put on my crown, gonna shout all over God's heaven. Heaven, heaven, everybody talking about heaven, ain't going to heaven. Heaven, 
go and shout all over God's hymn. I got a robe, you got a robe, all of God's children got a robe. When we get to heaven, gonna put on the robe, gonna shout all over God's hymn. Hymn, hymn, everybody talking about heaven, ain't going there, hymn. Hymn, go and shout all over God's hymn. I got shoes, you got shoes, all the God's children got shoes. When I get to heaven, gonna put on the shoes, gonna walk all over God's hymn. Hymn, hymn, everybody talking about hymn, ain't going there, hymn. Hymn, gonna walk all over God's hymn. I got a harp, you got a harp, all the God's children got a harp. When I get to heaven, gonna play on the harp, gonna play all over God's hymn. Hymn, hymn, everybody talking about hymn, ain't going to hymn. Hymn, gonna play all over God's hymn. I got a song, you got a song, all the God's children got a song. When I get to heaven, gonna sing a new song, gonna sing all over God's hymn. Hymn, hymn. Everybody talking about him, ain't going to him. Him going to sing all over God's him. Sing all over God's him. Sing all over God's I love that. I always thought you could hear that gospel cry in Sam's playing, you know? He kind of has that yeah. little vibrato thing going on. Yes. You know, there's yeah. definitely, he, you hear that lineage in his in his sound, in his mm-hmm. voice. So Sam's parents were, were very steeped in music, and that would explain, uh, you know, very early on they had him on violin and piano. And he was raised in Chicago. And, I, you know, if you think about that time, we're talking about late 20s, early 30s, and the Regal Theater and the Savoy Ballroom, both in the same building in Chicago. And his father would take him there. And, you know, you had uh, the, the big bands coming through there, like Duke Ellington. I don't know if Fess Williams was still playing in the early 30s. Um, but at age 14, Sam's father was disabled uh, in an accident, and his mother took a job in Little Rock. And this was uh, around 1937. And he went from trombone to soprano and finally ended up on tenor at around age 15. Now, I was talking with uh, some other people as a part of this program, and it's very interesting that Sam didn't debut as a leader on recording until 1964, Future Swing Song. He was 40. That's, it is remarkable, yeah. And I don't think he even appears on a recording till uh, that Tad Dameron date that wasn't released. Right. You know, like two years before that. He was well into his late 30s. 1961 yeah. was yeah, that. 37 yeah. maybe, yeah. And if you look at his sessionography, he's just hugely prolific. Yeah. Um, even starting at age 40. So that's, I'm 40, and that's just hugely inspiring. You know, but of course, um, there's this, so one of the questions that came up, you know, on, on some of these interviews is, well, this is largely undocumented recording history prior to that. And so, you know, let's talk about that. I mean, I know you've 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 read up on 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 Sam's history, and we know he was in the Navy uh, during World War II, based in the Bay Area. And he mentioned this to me um, in one conversation that he the first gig that he remembers sitting in on was uh, blues singer uh, Jimmy Witherspoon. 
And this would have been, I guess, around uh, probably 1944, something like that. funny hearing that because you mentioned to me while we were listening to that i could really hear sam playing on something like that you know yeah it's easy to imagine <laughs> right. yeah so in 1946 he moved to boston and this is where you know he spent quite a bit of time here uh, before moving to new york attended boston conservatory and studied with alan hovanus is that how you pronounce his Hovannis, name Hovannis? I think, yeah and i think he met b here in boston i believe yeah, am i wrong about that i, I read an interview uh that uh, with Ted Pankin of WKCR, where he talked about meeting B. He lived in a house with, I think, 12 other musicians, music students. I see. There was a really a thriving scene between Boston Conservatory, New England Conservatory, and uh, Schillinger House, which became Berkeley. Uh, you know, all a few blocks apart, and, and jazz musicians studying at all those schools, studying composition and instruments and stuff. And it was a huge, great community. You had Gigi Grice during that time, and, and um, of course, drummer Tony Williams, Quincy Jones, Joe Gordon, Herb Pomeroy. Mm-hmm. Um, Another yeah. name I talked to Sam about was Richard Twardzik, who was a great pianist, very, very innovative. Uh, died in early 50s, unfortunately, at age 23, but somebody that Cecil Taylor remembered. Yeah, Sam was right in the middle of all of that. Gigi Grice went to Boston Conservatory also, so they must have been, I don't know if they were classmates at exactly the same time, not sure. And I read he was, also in that interview, I think I read he was writing jingles in Boston. Did you read that? Yes. Yeah, yeah kind of jingles and uh, song poem music, you <laughs> right. know, where, where people send in a, a poem and hope that it'll be right. turned into a hit by some musician. He got a gig doing that. Yeah, he, he amazing. Said, 
Give me some lyrics. I'll set some music to it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Fifty dollars, and you get a ten forty-fives or something like that. I'm, you know, they used to advertise these things in the back of magazines. Right, and mm-hmm. I guess this is, you know, one of the big points of his his career was uh, meeting Tony Williams in uh, in Boston. And I what the what I heard was that it was a coffee house in Cambridge. I don't know where that was. How long has that 1369 been around? That was for? no, it was the Club 47, the oh, Club famous 47. Uh, okay. folk club. I see. And uh, oh, I you know uh, somebody will call in and correct me. Yeah, I sorry. believe is that the same place as Passim is today? I think so in Harvard uh, Square. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, and you said it was right outside of Harvard Square, or right around Harvard Square. Yeah, so that would make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's interesting. Um, which you know loomed large in the careers of you know Joan Baez and people like oh, that yeah, later, sure. not much later. You know, we're almost the same time. Um, yeah, and he used to play uh, for a painter with Tony Williams. I read this in another interview, that, and he, he mentioned it when I met him. Um, they would play while somebody was painting, like live it, free improvisation with a painter. Yes, I read that. Mm-hmm. The Boston Improvisational Ensemble, I think he called mm-hmm. it, and, and, and it was in museums often. There, They would play these, these improvised shows in museums. Yeah. So, of course, in 1964, it was Tony Williams who brought Sam into the Miles Davis Quintet. And this is, this is, this is a short stint, but it was one that was recorded in, in, on the record Miles in Tokyo. And, you know, from what I read, he was on tour with T-Bone Walker uh, during this time, 1964, and got the call to tour with Miles Davis. Here's a little bit from that Tokyo concert. Saxon they have from Boston, Massachusetts, Sam Rivers. Sam Rivers on tenor. Sam Rivers. On drums, Tony Williams. Tony. At the bass, Ron Carter. Ron Carter. It's the Herbie Hancock at the piano. Herbie Hancock. Proud to present Miles Davis Quintet. Miles Davis. Thank you. 
There's a segment from So What, Miles Davis Quintet, live in Tokyo, 1964, with Sam Rivers on tenor. And Sam was in the temporary tenor chair until Wayne Shorter became available. And uh, that's, uh, of course, Herbie Hancock piano, Ron Carter bass, Tony Williams on drums. Tony Williams was the one who brought him into the band. My name is Brian Carpenter. We're doing a special here on Sam Rivers. And Alan Chase is here in the studio, and uh, we also have Russ Gershon here. He is a saxophonist and composer who's played on countless recordings, probably best known as the founder of the acclaimed Either Orchestra over 25 years ago, still active today. Russ, thank you for being here. My pleasure. I uh, wanted to ask you, since since you're here, can you talk about, um, I, you know, I know we've talked a little bit about over, over Facebook about, you know, how important Sam is and and what he's meant in our lives. Maybe you can just talk about how you met Sam and, and, and what he means to you and give us some opening statements. Well, I heard I first heard Sam in about 1976 when he was touring with uh, Dave Holland and Barry Altschul, which was just one of the greatest bands ever, really. And um, I think I heard him for the first time here in Boston. Actually, I was visiting. I'm from the New York area. I was visiting a friend who was going to school up here, and we went to... Uh, John Hancock Hall, I believe. Wow. And heard that trio play, and it just blew my mind, to coin a phrase. And I started following that band around, and I went down to Philadelphia and heard them play in Philadelphia at um, a, a little venue called the Foxhole, which was on the campus of University of Pennsylvania that was booking incredible jazz at that point. And then I heard them play in New York, and I was a groupie, you know. It was, yeah. <laughs> they were my Grateful Dead. That's right. <laughs> but um, the well, trio with the trio with with Dave and, with and da- Barry. Dave and Barry, yeah. yeah. And uh, they would do, you know, these incredible um, two-hour sets of music. They, they kind of did the same um, uh, routine. Is makes it sound too routine. The same program. Uh, every time I saw them, and I, I saw them as that band evolved over the next few years, where they would they would get together and play for two hours, and they didn't really play tunes per se. They kind of played. Uh, they they had grooves. They had sort of poles. You know, it was a, it was an improvisation that went on for two hours, and it would always hit certain certain uh, certain areas. There was this kind of funky thing that they did. There was this really, really super up tempo. The you know the way that Dave Holland, only Dave can play that super fast walking thing, that's like you know quarter note equals four hundred or something. That's free and it's still swinging at the same time. And they would they would kind of get over to there, and they would play. And then Sam would go from instrument to instrument. He played tenor, soprano, piano, and flute. And so over the course of the two hours, he would do about a half an hour on each instrument. And so between the different musical, you know grooves that they would play and then the th- the four instruments it was always different every night and it was incredibly exciting no matter how you sure, yeah. how you took it and then uh, a couple of years later I was going to college here and I was doing a radio show at, at WHRB and Sam was coming through to play at Jonathan Swift's which some people may remember mm-hmm. it's now Catch a Rising Star or maybe it's not even that anymore mm-hmm. and um being a DJ I was like hey man, I can interview Sam you know and so I frantically called the club and, and and got Sam and Dave to come down to the radio station and interviewed them. They, they turned out to be like terrifically nice guys, you know, not at all. You know, they're so serious when they're playing, uh, but very genial, very nice to a young, you know, punk like me. And um, 
And after that, whenever they came to town, I I would just uh, give Sam a call or some kind of get in touch and hang out with, with particularly with him and B, his wife, who was a very, very nice person too. And uh, so I was inducted or sort of raised from groupie to like groupie who got to go to the dressing room and hang out. <laughs> and uh, it, it was just, it was a real door for me into like the highest level of musicians being like nice, normal, regular people. Mm-hmm. He was so generous. Yeah. Uh, just unbelievably generous. Yeah. Just a sweetheart. Yeah. Really and was. B was a riot, you oh, know. She's great. Yeah. Just, a, just, they were funny and it was always, it was like a special occasion when they came to town. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Your experience seeing the trio with Dave Holland and Barry Alsha was similar to my experience in the 90s, seeing his trio with Doug Matthews and Anthony Cole, mm-hmm. where he would, it was really, they, it wasn't a routine, but it was definitely, they, they had their sort of thematic material that would, they would go into, they had a funky thing, they would go into a really v- incredibly fast swing thing, they would all switch instruments, and mm-hmm. it's right, incredibly right. exciting and compelling yeah, every single yeah. time. Yeah. And and, uh, and with that band, which I saw also several times, he t- the switching instruments thing went even further because the drummer played tenor and the yes, the bass right. player played bass clarinet. And <laughs> yeah, that was remarkable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the trio, not exactly the trio Russ is describing. I saw them with I think Bobby Battle on drums at mm. the Keystone Corner in San Francisco, in nineteen eighty. That was the first time I got to see him play. I see. But even this goes back to the album Streams with uh, Cecil, Cecil McBee yeah. and uh, Norman Connors. Right. Believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. Norman Connors, yeah. before he figured out how to make some money. <laughs> In the disco area. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, he, he had Thurman Barker after Barry Alcho, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. then he started bringing Joe Daly into the band mm-hmm. somewhere around 76, 77, 78. Yeah. And sometimes it would be Joe instead of bass, but usually it was in addition, which was a really, uh, you know, added a whole other dimension. And I just started a ra- uh, recording. In fact, you might have posted it on Facebook with Joe and Sid Smart, mm. our own Sid Smart sure, right. here in Sid Boston. Smart, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and so that was definitely his format at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this this Miles Davis quintet thing. I mean, you know, Sam is is very well known for playing with Sam, but he only he only played with him for I don't know what it was six months. And yeah. you know, I was talking with a friend of mine about this 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 whole concept of, of Sam playing with with Miles, and the question came up, speculating on the direction of Miles's quintet if Sam had stayed in the band. Can you imagine Sam writing for that band? I mean, yeah, it, it, I can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Wayne Shorter and Sam were not a thousand miles apart. They're different, uh, and it would have been a little more out and strange with <laughs> Sam uh, than Wayne. Um, I love the recording that, that that has Wayne and Sam playing together uh, on Tony Williams' Spring, Spring album, mm-hmm. you know, around that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the stories seem to be that Miles thought Sam was too strange and avant-garde and didn't kind of have what he was looking for in a complimentary tenor player. He certainly was... In the tradition of Miles having Sonny Rollins, Coltrane especially, you know, a noty sort of foil uh, who played a lot differently from Miles himself right. and, and was pushing the envelope, but maybe it was just a little too much for Miles. I think My, uh, Miles had his eye on Wayne for a long time, I too. I think that's true, too. Uh, that's for true. his writing as much as anything else. Yeah. I mean, his playing, of course, is the best, but um, I think he, he, he tried hiring him, I think— um, he was with Maynard Ferguson at one point, and right? He, and the jazz and, messengers, and the jazz I think. messengers, right. and that's probably where Miles knew his tunes for the most, because he he really rewrote their repertoire, and I think um, that and, was uh, important to him. 
and there was some kind of uh, chivalry, or I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for, some kind <laughs> of extreme civility that uh, is interesting in, among jazz band leaders who respected one another in those days. Like Coltrane would wait until Benny Gulson would release McCoy Tyner to join his <laughs> band. Or you know, it was like amazing. I can't, amazing. you know, I would not intervene in the inner <laughs> dynamics of your band, even though there were lines of you know great. Uh, tenor players waiting to play with Art Blakey or so and so forth. Well, that's back when bands actually had gigs. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> they were busy Good working. Point. Yeah. And followings and fans. That's and, right. Uh, yeah. Now you identities. can be in 40 bands at once because they each only play, you know, four nights a year. That's very true. <laughs> Well, let's let's talk about uh, what happens after that. After this stint with with Miles Sand moves to New York in '64, and joins Andrew Hill's band, and uh, starts actively uh, playing with Cecil Taylor. and And that year, he also recorded his first record as a leader. And as we were talking about, this, he's he's in 1964. He's 40 years old. The record is Future Swing Song. Now, what I what I read, and I think it was the Pankin interview or one of these other interviews, is that this Blue Note date was almost canceled. Because Sam had newer music for the album, but it was a little too advanced for producer Alfred Lyon. Because Alfred Lyon had heard Sam through um, Lifetime, through the Tony Williams Lifetime record. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of brought him in, and Sam had written this Fuchsia Swing Song music much earlier, like five years earlier, late 1950s, 59. And so Alfred said he was going to cancel the dates. Sam went back and, and said, wait a minute, I've got this other music from, from the late 50s. And that's what this this record is. It's music from 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 '59. So that's that's kind of an interesting story. It is. It yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense based on what you're hearing of Sam's playing at that time that he could have written these tunes earlier. I got an email from Ed Michelle last night, who uh, which I'll bring in a little bit later when we're talking about the Impulse years. This was a producer that worked with him in the '70s, but he said. Um, he said that he uh, was talking to Sam about his writing and that Sam said something about, I had a book that was very much along the lines of Birth of the Cool, but after that, after Miles did it, there was no point. <laughs> and he still had the charts around somewhere. So I think it's the subject of what Sam was writing before 1964 is a very fascinating yes, subject. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it's probably at least interesting and good music you know yeah. and when nobody heard it outside of boston probably well we'll hear a little bit of that later the elder speaks that that piece mm. from the tad dameron date which is a rivers composition yes it might give some insight into what you were just talking about there but I, I love this this record future swing song i love the ensemble sam on tenor jackie byard on 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 piano tony williams on drums of course who were boston people that he that he knew here mm -hmm. who we brought onto the date and ron carter on bass so let's hear an alternate take here from luminous monolith this is from the 1964 session uh, comes from the Mosaic box set. And this is a really interesting point here. Listen to how self-assured and unique Sam's voice is on tenor here, right out of the gate here. Debut recording as a leader. Clearly, he's developed his own vocabulary, his own language. No one sounded like him. Um, and this is uh, 1964. There's a lot, of course, there's a lot happening during this time. Uh, Jackie Byard, I also love Jackie Byard's uh, work on this track. Luminous Monolith, Future Swing Song, 1964, Blue Note Records. Mm-hmm. 
boxing. I'm a trumpet player, and uh, that's my day job. I'm a trumpet player. My profession is I'm a musician and uh, a ranger and writer and band leader. I guess I was 21, and I and I was living in Long Island City and just getting really into more and more into rock music and funk music. I was listening to basically the Sly and Beatles White Album and, and David Bowie's Low, and I had just started in well, I left Columbia, and I was kind of going like, okay, got to find some kind of more jazz type direction I can relate to. I've been playing jazz for so long, I was kind of like getting away from. It just doesn't really interest me anymore, you know, about this program. And the only record I could figure out that I wanted to play like was Future Swing Song. It was so abstract to me, you know, and that's what I loved about it because it felt like jazz, but there were no licks. See, I was always, you know, in real early age, I got turned off the idea of licks. I figured, like, if I could hear it, I don't want to play it. So I really wanted to play things I couldn't hear but still felt like jazz. And that was like really, and I just, that was like the only like straight ahead record I listened to for a really long time.
Yannis, Jason Moran. I met Sam through Steve Coleman and Greg Asby. And I used to see Sam every time he came to the city. Uh, as many times as I could and bootleg as many shows as I could. Yeah, you know, I remember Jackie Byer talking about when they lived together in in Boston, you know. And I think even Gigi Grice was in this house, too. Uh, that's a fact that needs to be confirmed. But, but Jackie would talk about, like, kind of being in this building with Sam and Gigi and, you know, like, you know, how much they would play together and, and talk about ideas together. Or I think Jackie said he woke up one morning and he thought somebody was downstairs in the basement playing some Charlie Parker records and went down there and it was Charlie Parker. <laughs> but, but, but Jackie also talks about not recording his first record until he was 40. Like, there's a whole kind of, like, the maturity of these musicians when they finally get that opportunity. You know about the duets with Tony Williams and when Tony would not go to high school, he'd go to Sam's house, right? So he told me that Tony's mom would go be at work all day and she thought Tony was in school and Tony would be hanging out with Sam playing duets. And then he said they would just play like really like super high fast tempos for hours and like Sam was practicing, you know, what was that was working on that part of his vocabulary. And he said, oh, I love playing with Tony because he can play really, really fast, you know. And he said Tony can play like in any, he said he could also do a thing where you could say, you know, play like Philly Joe Jones, you can play Philly Joe Jones, like Joe Jones, you know, play like he could like imitate any drummer. Mm -hmm. 